You know, you would think that as they're starting the 30th season of the popular TV show Survivor, that I would have watched maybe more than one and a half episodes. Reality TV to me is Antiques Roadshow. You know, that's, <laughs> that's my favorite. There's the more human interest in Antiques Roadshow than any of this other stuff. But uh, as you probably know, on the Survivor series, everyone gets voted off the island, as it were, or has to leave on account of an injury or illness till there's one lone survivor who wins the competition. And in order to win, alliances have to be formed and the contestants have to work together in tribes, which seems kind of strange, at least to me, that there's only one winner after all of that, especially when one cannot win, at least as I understand it, unless all those who have already been voted out vote for you as the winner. But there's one thing about the show that seems true to life, at least as we apply it to the Christian life. And that is that as Christians, we can only survive, we can only thrive in this world if we understand the environment and the culture in which we live, if we understand our own strengths, if we understand our own weaknesses, if we understand who the enemy really is, that it's not flesh and blood, it's not people, but it's the God of this age, Satan, and his principalities, his cohorts, and most of all, if we understand where our strength and where our resources really come from and on whom we can rely. And we also understand that it's not about the rugged individualism that's promoted today, that's portrayed on TV, but it's about knowing whom we serve as fellow servants of the living God. When we come to understand these things, we can cross out that word survivor and we could substitute the word victor, as in victory. Over the next several weeks, we're going to go back to the Old Testament books of Joshua and Judges, which is kind of interesting because in Sunday school, we're in Ruth. Joshua, Judges, and, and, and Ruth. With the theme, Christian survivor, cross out survivor, and change it to victor, 21st century edition. So we're beginning a new adventure today. An adventure that will not only determine whether we survive as believers in Jesus Christ, whether we survive as Grace Baptist Church, or whether we live or die, or we live in unbelief, but it will determine whether or not we are indeed victorious. Victorious. One of the main themes of the book of Joshua is how to live the victorious Christian life. Now that sounds a little strange. I'm back to Texas again. That sounds a little strange that we find a Christian theme in an Old Testament book. But the book of Joshua presents the Christian life as it ought to be and as it is shown to be in the New Testament. The Christian life is conflict and victory, faith and obedience, spiritual riches and rest. It's a life of faith, trusting and resting in Jesus Christ, our Yeshua. Did you know the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, is the exact same as the Greek name Jesus, Jesus? Joshua, both of them mean God is our salvation, or Jehovah saves. When the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, the enemy was all around them. They lived in the midst of the enemy, and the enemy made their lives miserable. For 400 years, they had lived in bondage to the terrible taskmasters of Egypt. And in the same way, before coming to Jesus Christ, you lived in bondage to sin. But when you came to Christ, you were set free from the law of sin and death. So when Israel was delivered from Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, they put the enemy behind them. 
behind them. But on account of disobedience, they found themselves in the wilderness. The wilderness experience of Israel depicts us as believers who live in that same unbelief and disobedience. Believers who don't come into the rest and the riches of their inheritance in Christ, either because they don't know it's there or they know it's there and they refuse to enter. So like Israel, so many people come to a crisis place, but they refuse to obey the Lord. They refuse to claim his will for their lives. They're delivered from Egypt, but Egypt is still in their hearts. And it's the same way, same thing can happen to Christians. We receive the Lord Jesus Christ, but we still have the world and the ways of the world in our hearts. We have a desire to go back to the old life. Instead of marching through life as conquerors, too many Christians meander through life as wonders and never enjoy the fullness of what God has planned for them. And the cultural landscape becomes littered with Christian casualties. But what happens when we want to enter into the rest and the riches of our inheritance of Christ? When we're tired of wandering around and we really want to do that. When Israel is delivered from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, they put their enemies behind them. When the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan River and came into the land of promise, into what God had for them, now they saw new enemies ahead of them, before them, and they conquered these enemies by faith. The victorious Christian life isn't a once-for-all triumph that ends all our problems. Everybody can say amen to that. As pictured by Israel in the book of Joshua, the victorious Christian life is a series of conflicts and victories as we defeat one enemy after another and claim more and more of our glorious inheritance in Christ Jesus. The eminent Scottish preacher Alexander White used to say that the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. I'd like to say that it's also a series of new adventures. New adventures. As one adventure ends, another one comes along. At, and each new adventure contains a whole new set of, of variables. The culture has changed. People's attitudes concerning Christians and concerning God have changed. People's attitudes concerning sin change. The devil has certainly adapted his schemes to gain an advantage. Even the prevalent views of those who profess Christians seems to change. And then we change as we are changed more and more into the image of our Savior. And before we know it, we find ourselves on this strange island, this whole different place where the people and the environment seem so odd and in some cases bizarre. How can they think that? How can they do that? What happened to this place? And it's these kinds of crisis points that we are faced with a decision. What are we going to do as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ, when we begin a new adventure like this? Well, we can, one thing we can do, we can hunker down like they did in the wilderness. We can hunker down in unbelief and disobedience. We become spiritual casualties, dropping off one at, one at a time in the wilderness. Or do we cross over into the rest and the riches of our inheritance in Jesus Christ? Every time I, I see that crossing over, I think of what the, the word Hebrew means. The word Hebrew actually means to cross over. They're the ones that crossed over through the Red Sea. They're the ones that crossed over the, the Jordan. And if we cross over, it means facing new enemies before us. 
So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, or you can use the one in the rack to the first chapter of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1 at verse 1, page 253. I want to point out some of the key phrases just as an overview for a little while that show us how to live the victorious Christian life. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at each one of these in more depth. But after I point out these key phrases, at least for our time this morning, we'll conclude with one of the most important concepts of living the Christian life. Uh, Joshua chapter 1 at verse 1. And uh, you might want to take a pencil or pen and circle these in your Bible. You know how I always am. Write in your Bible. Mark in your Bible. If you can't mark in your Bible, get one you can mark in. Okay? You know, mark it out. Because for a couple of reasons, even if you're using the one in the pew or in the, the seat rack, you know, mark that one too. Because you might bless somebody else when they see that later. And, uh, and when you mark in your own Bible, you bless yourself later. You ever gone back and go, oh, wow. I had that figured out once. No, I just, just kidding. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. One of the questions we'll be asking, what does it mean to serve the Lord? Verse 1, now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. So underline or circle there, the servant of the Lord. That the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. So there, Mark again, Moses' servant, Moses, my servant. And then he continues, Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Do you know the Bible has almost 1,200 references to God's servants? Boy, you'd think that would be significant. Well, it is. Now drop down to verse 7 of Joshua chapter 1. As the people are about to go into the land of promise, Joshua encourages them, verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. There it is again, Moses, my servant. Do not turn from the right or from the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Now, there's several more places we could circle that idea of service. But turn over once again to the 24th chapter of Joshua that we read this morning. Joshua chapter 24, beginning at verse 14. There's several more places I want you to circle that idea of service. Verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him. There it is again. Circle that in sincerity and truth. Serve the Lord. Verse 15, is a disagreeable in your sight to what? Serve the Lord. There it is again. Choose for yourselves today, what? Whom you will serve. Whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now giving. But as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. If I was to pick one theme verse for our time together the next several weeks, it would be this. We, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If we're going to live and experience the victorious Christian life and enter into all that God has for us, it's essential to know what it means to serve him, to obey him. Uh, these verses in Joshua chapter 24, as we're still on this page, raise another question for the victorious Christian life. We skimmed over it in verse 14, the 14th verse, something else I want you to mark. That's the step towards victory. Verse 14 again. Now therefore, what? Fear the Lord. 
Circle the idea of fearing the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? If fear of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, as the Proverbs say, then we need to be clear on what it means to, to fear the Lord. Now, another critical question that arises in living the victorious Christian life is, what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? So back to chapter 1 of Joshua again. I tried to put these in some kind of order that would make it a little simpler, but uh, back to chapter 1 of Joshua, verse 7 again. Chapter 1, verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? Circle only be, be strong. Underline that or circle it. And you might want to write a cross-reference there, either in the margin or right above that. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians 6.10, after we are exhorted to put on the full armor of God, Paul says, finally, what? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might? What does it mean to serve the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? And then one more question that we'll be asking, answering and asking from the experience of Joshua and his people is this, what does it mean to know the Lord? What does it mean to know the Lord? So turn over to the book of Judges. The verses that we looked at a little bit last week. Judges chapter 2 at verse 6. Verses 6 through 10 of Judges chapter 2. And we get to the idea of knowing the Lord at the end of this. But uh, if your hand's already in the practice of circling things... There's a few more things that you can circle here that go along with our themes. Verse 6 of Judges chapter 2. When Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord. We're back to serving again. All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, if you're used to circling again or underlying, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, and it's spoken from the negative, but who did not know the Lord? Circle the word, know the Lord. Yet the work which he had done for them. What does it mean to know the Lord? What does it mean to those who know him? What does it mean to those who don't know him? You know, even after years of faithful service and love for Jesus Christ, you can jot down another cross-reference here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Philippians 3, 10. Even after all that Paul had walked with the Lord and done with the Lord and worked for the Lord, he still cried out in Philippians 3, 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What does it mean to know the Lord? What does it mean to experience his strength, to experience his power and his faithful servants? I'm not talking about what does it mean to know about the Lord. What does it mean to know the Lord? In the next coming weeks, we're going to spend some very serious time on getting to know God, getting to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to conclude this morning with getting to know the Lord Jesus a little better. Do you notice all the questions that we asked of the text included the title, Lord? What does it mean to serve the Lord? 
What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? And what does it mean to know the Lord? It all begins with the Lord. So I want to switch to a different analogy, a different metaphor from the survivor kind of idea that helps us understand what it means to live the victorious Christian life. Now, climbing Mount Everest has been in the news a couple of times this last year, the last two seasons in particular, because last year the climbing season was cut short because of that horrible avalanche that killed dozens of people and killed a lot of the guides and the people who live on the mountain and near the mountain. This last year, this climbing season, it was cut short because of the large earthquake. Uh, And so there's a question as to when even climbers might be able to attempt Mount Everest again, to take that dangerous and treacherous climb. And climbing Mount Everest has become more and more dangerous as time has gone on. So I want you to picture yourself. This might take a little imagination. I want you to picture yourself at the base camp. The base camp. You're getting ready to climb Mount Everest. And you're going, oh, no, I'm not. (laughs) <laughs> but I want you to picture yourself there. <laughs> Some of you, you're right there. You know it's going to be dangerous. You're excited. You're feeling some anticipation. Maybe you're even afraid. You've had some good training. You're familiar with the equipment that you're going to be using. But what would be foremost in your mind before you begin that climb? What would, be you, what would you be thinking about? It might be that you want to make sure that all your gear and all your equipment was appropriate and that you knew how to use it. We could call that discipleship, having all the right stuff and knowing how to use it. It might be that you'd want to make sure that the other climbers knew what they were doing and that you could absolutely depend upon them. We could call that fellowship. But I think more than anything else, at least what I would want to know is who's in charge, (laughs) Does the person in charge have the experience, the skills, the knowledge that is necessary for a successful climb to get me there victoriously and get me home safely? Is he someone on whom I can depend? Will the other climber submit to his lordship or his leadership? I just gave it away. His leadership. (laughs) Or are they just going to go off and do their own thing and put the rest of us in, in peril? Will they follow him without question, without, uh, it, you know, without wondering if it's the right thing? You know, will they just, if there's a severe emergency in particular, will they just listen to him immediately? Can I trust him with my life? And can I trust him with the life of my fellow climbers? Is he the one who can lead me in victory? And there's only one qualification or one person with the qualification necessary when we begin and we live the Christian life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, we want the right discipleship. We want the right fellowship, but we also want the right lordship to follow the right person. Is it someone to whom I can submit without question and everybody else will submit without question or quite frankly, we're all goners. Every Christian has only two options when it comes to the Christian life. There's only two once you receive Jesus Christ. The first option is to meander in the wilderness in disbelief and in disobedience. 
The wilderness experience of Israel shows us that that's what they did. They lived in disobedience and disbelief. They don't enter into the rest and the riches of their inheritance in Christ, either because they don't know it's there or they refuse to enter. So like Israel, oftentimes in our Christian lives, we come to a crisis place and we go, okay, what are we going to do here? If we refuse to obey the Lord and claim his will for our lives, we're like those who are delivered from Egypt, but Egypt is still on our hearts. Same thing happens to Christians. We receive the Lord Jesus Christ, but we still have the world and the ways of the world in our hearts. We have a desire to go back to the old life. That's one way to live the Christian life. That's not good. The only other option is to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to show you one of my favorite word pictures in the New Testament. We find it in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning on verse, at verse 14. Page 14, 14, and the, the Bible's in the racks. In chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, at verse 14, Paul gives us a very vivid picture, a great word picture, of what the victorious Christian life looks like. In verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. The Latin word is triumphe. That's where we get our word triumph. The word translated triumph in the Greek is triambos. And the triambos was a technical term that referred to the triumphal celebration and parade that took place in ancient Rome when a conquering hero returned from battle. The highest honor that could be given to a Victorian Roman general was a triumphe, the triumph, the parade. If you ever saw the movie Ben-Hur, they do a great, great job of showing Ben-Hur in the tribunal in, in triumph. Ben-Hur had saved the life of the Roman tribune when they were shipwrecked during a naval battle. Even though the Tribune ship was lost, the Romans, the fleet, won the battle. And when the Tribune returned to Rome, Ben-Hur is seen there standing in the chariot next to the Tribune as the chariot goes through this massive parade and ceremony. William Barclay described the triumph this way. In an actual triumph, the, the procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital in the following order. First, there came the state officials and the senate. Then there came the trumpeters. Then there were carried the spoils taken from the conquered land. For instance, when Titus conquered Jerusalem, the seven-branched candlestick, the menorah, the golden table, the showbread, and the golden trumpets were carried through the streets of Rome. Then there came pictures of the conquered land and models of conquered citadels and ships. Then followed the white bull for sacrifice, which was to be made. Then there walked the wretched captives, the enemy princes, leaders and generals in chains, shortly to be flung into prison, in all probability almost immediately to be executed. Then there came the lictors bearing their rods, followed by the musicians with their lyres. Then there came the priests, swinging their censers with the sweet-smelling incense burning in them. 
And then came the general himself. He stood in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was clad in purple tunic embroidered with golden palm leaves and over it a purple toga marked out with golden stars. In his hand he held an ivory scepter with the Roman eagle on top of it and over his head a slave held the crown of Jupiter. After him there rode his family and finally there came the army wearing all their decorations and shouting, Io triumphe, their cry of triumph. As the procession moved through the streets all decorated in garland, Amid the shouting, cheering crowds, it was a tremendous day, a day which might happen only once in a lifetime. And then Barclay continues, this is the picture that is in Paul's mind. He sees the conquering Christ marching in triumph through the world and himself in that conquering train. It is a triumph which Paul is certain nothing can stop. If we want a parallel verse to what Paul is saying here, it's when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus Christ is the conquering hero, marching in triumph throughout the whole world and absolutely nothing can stop him that is what we would call victorious, authentic Christianity. And Paul writes here, he always leads us. He always leads us. We are in the procession with Christ. And like Ben-Hur, we are close enough to the chariot. It's like we're in the chariot with Jesus Christ. Someone said it this way. Jesus Christ fought a battle that was not rightly his so that we might share in a victory that is not rightly ours. Jesus Christ fought a battle that was not rightly his so that we might share in a victory that is not rightly ours. But Paul's word picture gets even better. Verse 14 again. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now Barclay written that in the Roman triumph, there were the priests who would march in the parade and they carried these large jars containing burning incense. And it would take two of them to swing these jars as they went through the parade procession. And that aroma would waft through the crowd and fill the streets. Now to the generals and those who were marching in victory, the perfume from the censers was a fragrance of joy. It was the triumph of life. But to the wretched captives who were in chains, who all walked just a short distance ahead of that, it was the perfume of death. The aroma reminded the captives that as soon as the parade was over, they would be tortured and executed. Now in this word picture, Paul says that the fragrance refers to us as believers. Verse 15, we are a what? Fragrance of Christ. A fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Authentic Christianity has a certain fragrance. Paul calls it the fragrance of Christ to God. It's a fragrance that is well-pleasing to God because it's a fragrance of an acceptable sacrifice. Jesus gave his life on the cross so that we might live eternally with him. 
Authentic Christianity, the real thing, leaves a lingering fragrance. And Paul says that as believers, we are that fragrance. And everybody else around us can smell it, whether they are saved or whether they are perishing. Paul says that to one, it's an aroma from death to death. It's like the captives in the parade. They should have died in the battlefield from death, but since they didn't die at first, they're going to die when the parade ends. So that aroma reminds them they've come from death to death. At the end of the procession, it's all over. While authentic Christianity exudes an aroma that's pleasing to God and smells great to God, it smells great to those who have received Jesus Christ and walk in triumph with him. To the person who has rejected Jesus Christ, it has the smell of death. It stinks. It reminds them of their rejection of God. It reminds them of the impending death, the separation from God, that they will face for all eternity. They may not understand that, but they just know they don't like the smell of it. Put another way, when you are a believer in Jesus Christ and share with him in the victory, you are the fragrance, Paul said. What? A lot of people are going to think you stink. (laughs) They're not going to like it. And they will pass laws against you because you stink. Until they share the victory with Christ, to them it's going to have a bad aroma because of what it's reminding them of. And so they fight for what they call their rights, their individual rights. They criminalize wherever they think that smell is coming from. They go on talk shows and they talk about, well, Christians really don't understand this. And you just have to change your beliefs. You have to change your values. After all, now it's the law, like it's done. Well, slavery also used to be the law as well. But to us as believers, he says, it's from life to life. We like the smell because we've been brought into life in Jesus Christ. Jesus called it the abundant life. We're walking in the abundant life, and it's to life. It's to everything that eternal salvation and life means for all eternity, from life to life. And Paul asks, who is adequate for these things? Are we up to being Christian survivors, crossing it out, victors? Where are we in the triumphe? Are we on the losing side? Are we on the sidelines, watching the parade go by, meandering in the wilderness? Who's adequate for these things? And Paul answers that question in the next chapter, in chapter 3, at at verse 4 of 2 Corinthians. Go down to verse 4 of the third chapter. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate. And if you're circling fingers, are still going as servants of a new covenant. There it is again, servants of the Lord, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Whom will you serve? If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, if that's disagreeable, choose this day for yourselves. Whom are you going to serve? Whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Americans, I mean Amorites, (laughs) in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve 
the Lord. What a commitment to ask the Holy Spirit to make in our hearts as we prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's table. The Lord's table. The Lord's supper. The cup of the Lord. The bread of the Lord. We can make that commitment as we come to his table. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, sometimes it's our culture, sometimes it's the Supreme Court, oftentimes it's just in the land that we find ourselves living, as it were, Father, that uh, we come to those decision points, those critical times in our own individual lives as Christians, those critical times, our own individual lives if we don't know the Lord, those critical times in the life of our church, Father. And we have that opportunity to say, Lord, we want to serve you. We want to know you. We want to know the power of your resurrection. Father, I don't want to be on the sidelines in the triumphe of Christ. I don't want to be in the middle somehow just being shoved along and going along. Lord, I want to be celebrating you in victory as we march with you, as we walk with you, as we see you work every day in our lives. And we submit ourselves to your lordship. We submit ourselves to your will. And we do this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we confess as Lord. Amen.